welcome to Kill Your Silos, the only show that dares and asks the question, there must be a better way to operate all this shit, huh? I'm your host, Jason Reichel, and each week I speak with a pioneer of the revenue operations field, and this week is no different. My guest is Dana, the vice president and chief uh, of the chief revenue officer practice at Anaplan. Uh, hello, and thank you for joining me. Hi, Jason. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, we go a few years back. I, I saw you at a conference, if I recall. And the first thing I thought is there's someone that knows how to dress. Um, <laughs> do you get do you get that a lot? Well, I think uh, I, I was an analyst in Serious Decisions Enforcer. My job was to be on stage. So uh, I, I learned to help my game a little bit. And yeah, I love that. To, to draw attention to yourself was to, to, to wear something unique. Like I'd wear a bright red jacket so that when people wanted to speak to me and say, hey, have you seen the guy with the right bread, the bright red jacket? So it just made me easier to identify. 100%. Yeah. Well, I did do that. And I also, after that, went and spent a boatload of money on some uh, cool looking suits. So uh, thank you for uh, that little nudge. Oh, good for you. That's great. Yeah. Um, the first question on the podcast is always how did you end up in that chair that you're in right now? Uh, you know, that what's the journey for you as a person? Nobody woke up saying, hey, I want to revolutionize operations for, for companies. Um, how did you end up in the position that you are now? So I, I work for Anaplan and I, and I lead the CRO practice for Anaplan. And that, that just means that I bring the perspective of a sales operations, revenue operations leader who supported many different CSOs and CROs over my career. And, and helping our salespeople understand that persona, how, how to sell to them. And also I take what I've experienced throughout my career and supporting people in those CROs back to Anaplan so that they can really develop the product more fully and to really meet the needs of those, of those types of people. And the way that I ended up here, I started off in operations. I have a long career. I started off in the military. I've always gravitated towards operational roles. And then I led sales operations, revenue operations functions for many different companies. Eventually, I became an analyst at, at Serious Decisions at the time we were acquired by Forrester. For me, that was an opportunity to stay within the same career, like understanding the operations roles because I really loved it, but to do something different with it, to be a to be like a professor of the profession, because I had experienced it for as much time as I had. Now I had an opportunity to go and study it more fully, to write research about it, and to work with other people who were trying to go through some of the things I've been through in my, in my career. And in that, I also had a, um, a practice that was helping sales performance management vendors, companies like Anaplan and others. I got to know many of the different CEOs, their CMOs, their product people. And uh, leaving Serious Decisions in Forrester, I wanted to do something even more different. So I, I'd been a practitioner, I'd been an analyst, and then I wanted to join another company just to help them as part of their overall product roadmap. And th that's how I ended up at, at Anaplan. When you think about being a practitioner, doing the walk, and then being a thought leader and guiding people through, you know, through the trenches, is it the same kind of person is a great practitioner. Do they have everything that's necessary to be also a great thought leader and also someone who leads others or are they two different kinds of personas have you found in your career? Uh, well, the, the, the interview process at Forrester and Serious Decisions was very rigorous. To, in order to be hired as an analyst, you had to write a 1500 word research brief and then you had to present that to the executives at that company 
so it was it was a practical interview experience. And I would say 90% of the people who went through that process didn't make it through the process because they realized that they didn't love writing. They, they realized that it was more difficult to gather their thoughts and to put them on paper and to pre present to a group of executives about things that they were very experienced at. So it, it took a special individual to be able to go through that process. Yeah. Um, so you can be a thought leader. Of course, everyone's got an opinion and people are sharing some wonderful ideas on LinkedIn all the time. But to formally want to go and be a researcher, that, that takes a special kind of drive. Yeah. One thing that I always found fascinating, you know, in our conversations that we've had together is where you were sort of, you know, I feel like from the outside, right? Because I didn't work for a Forrester or Sirius. I had started my own company and I had started the company with the purpose of unifying the business stack was the mission of that company of Go Nimbly. Um, and when I started that, there really revenue operations was around as a word, but that was really for deal desk operations and things like that. Um, and I said, well, maybe this word that is hardly used in, in vernacular and, you know, in tech could be repurposed as revenue operations and talking about the people who are focused on revenue. And so I always felt like I was on the outside, uh, kind of the outside of everything looking at uh, how, what words can we use to unify this? How can we actually talk about what these practitioners are doing in, in reality, you know, and they're operating the revenue stack and, you know. Uh, sales ops and marketing ops and all these different people are are becoming sort of uh, one unit, so to speak. And I, I saw that naturally in organizations, even yeah. if they had segmented titles. And I saw that at organizations that were starting up. And when they hired their first hires, they hired generalist operators who could could work across the revenue stack. And then I met you, and you were doing that research internally, uh, which was a you know a big surprise to me because it was nice to know that someone in in the industry was doing deep deep research on this and not just seeing it from a practitioner or an outsider's perspective, what was it like in that very uh, beginning part of the process where revenue operations was just starting to catch on and you were doing the actual research for it? What was the yeah. attitude towards people? Did people believe it was going to be <laughs> what it is now uh, as this as this kind of force that's taking over technology companies? Well, I felt like a heretic when I first started talking about it at, at Serious Decisions. Um, I mentioned to you the interview experience that I had where I had to write that research brief and also present to the executives. This was back at the end of 2014, 2015. The paper I wrote was really about the convergence of operations resources across sales, marketing, and customer success, because I'd seen that starting to happen in my practitioner days. In the last couple of roles I had before serious decisions, I just found myself getting pulled more in the direction of working with marketing and working with customer success and trying to align all these different efforts across the group. So I, I, wrote, I did my presentation on that. And at the time, I didn't know what to call it. I called it commercial operations, I think. Mm -hmm. And I said, look, it's only a matter of time before this whole thing converges to become one thing. That, that's how I started my career there. And then I went off and did a bunch of other research. I focused on sales compensation. Um, but I started to really pay attention to what was happening in the market and working with some of these vendors. And it culminated with a presentation I think I did in 2019, uh, Kerry Cunningham and I were on the main stage at the Serious Decisions Forester Summit in Austin, Texas, and we talked about revenue operations. But I was supposed to present with somebody who wasn't Kerry before that, somebody who came from marketing. And I got so much pushback from inside that company about talking about revenue operations because it was a, it was a marketing research-driven company. That's where right. they really made their, their mark. And I started talking about the convergence of operations functions across marketing and sales. And 
it wasn't well received by by a number of key analysts there. The person who was supposed to present with me backed out of it because it was just too much for that person to handle. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it came to blows. I, I was really quite surprised by it because I felt like our our job as researchers was to explain to people what was happening. But some right. people viewed themselves as being the steward of their profession, and they viewed it as a threat to marketing because marketing and sales could potentially combine underneath a CRO. Right. Yeah. And they felt like they'd worked so long in establishing the independence of marketing that they that was a that was a step backwards for them. I had a series of events like that. Go nimbly was asked to, you know, sponsor or or lead. I think it was leading uh, from a thought leadership perspective in our, our place in San Francisco that we had some Eloqua user groups, right? Yeah. And I was told, hey, you know, give a, you know, give a 10 minute lecture in the beginning of the thing about where the industry is going. And so I started talking about how, you know, I know that everyone in this room has made their career on Eloqua, but making your career on a piece of technology is probably not the smartest move. And also like Eloqua is part of a machine, it's part of a system that requires operators to think both forwards and backwards from where they're standing today, right? And so, yeah. you know, I thought I could, in a room full of operators who are operating at world-class status, I could have an open and frank conversation about, it's great that you know this space so well, and it's valuable, but maybe we should start looking at, instead of going deeper and deeper, we start looking to the left and right of us in order to make things um, work better for the businesses that we operate. Uh, I got uh, some letters from the executives of Eloqua saying, you know, how dare you talk like that in, you know, in front of our user group and, and, and other things like that. And I really thought I was trying to help people's career. You know, like I, yeah. I really didn't understand the game at that point in time and thought that I was, you know, uh, there to tell people, hey, you know, you can broaden your skill set and be even more valuable to your organization. Not that I didn't believe that Eloqua was a good tool because I actually do. Um, and so, you know, those kind of things are, are just weird when you get into the i would call it the the people ops aspect of this kind of work where you're trying to um spot trends call them out and help organizations get to a a a better place to operate within them so you know i think that all of us probably have stories like that but it is a very interesting thing that you can feel very much like a heretic uh to to your point um by just trying to tell people like look you're already doing this like it's already happening you know like we can either embrace it and understand how to how to operationalize it from the very beginning, or we can let it be chaos until it figures itself out. And that was kind of always my mindset in, in organizations that I went into. Yeah, and I, I knew I was onto something because, I, ironically, I was flying down to Austin, Texas, to meet with the person who was originally supposed to present with me, and she'd assembled a group of marketing people into that room. I was going to go in there on my own. And I just knew I was going to get beat up, right? Like they, they were there to tell me I was wrong. Um, but on my way down there, I, I had started pulling information off from LinkedIn. Back when you could still do this, I was able to go in there and query and look at the number of individuals in all these different go-to-customer roles from sales operations, marketing operations, CROs, uh, CMOs. And uh, I think I, I'd done it for two months in a row. And, and I'd noticed like the number of people who call themselves either a director or a VP of revenue operations had increased by like 60% month over month. Yep. And I, I started publishing that like every couple of months on LinkedIn. But when I did it that one time, I, I published it before I went on a flight. And when I landed, it had 15,000 hits on LinkedIn in a span of a couple of hours. Yeah. And I remember that post, quite frankly. Yeah. Like the, 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 the interest in that was incredibly intense. And I think at that time, 
I, there might have been four or 500 people who were calling themselves VPs or directors of revenue operations back in the fall of 2018. Today, if you go on LinkedIn, th there's so many, you can't, it goes beyond the limits of what LinkedIn will count. Yeah. So it's over 10,000. So it went from 500 to over 10,000. Yeah. And I just goes to show you, if you continue to speak the truth, people are going to continue to go in that direction. And I, I think there's more that's going to happen with revenue operations than what's already happened. And it's, it's some, some more heresy where it reports into sales today, but it's really got a broader view. And sometimes I think reporting into the wrong CRO, it can be used and abused and it can be seen as unfavorable. So some, in some cases, it probably should really be reporting into the COO. Yeah, COO. Yeah, I, I have a very... Uh specific view on this as being a CRO now in, in, in technology companies, you know, one of the things that I wanted to do is take everything I learned and, and go be a practitioner of it at the highest, highest levels, right? So th that's what I'm doing currently. And as a CRO, it's very different the way that I operate my team, believing first in revenue operations, and then in the individual elements of go to market, versus how if I'm in a CRO roundtable with other CROs, how they'll start with sales, talk all about sales, and never talk about any other department whatsoever. Yeah, that's um, exactly the problem because they, they have a very sales-centric view of everything. But look, one of the things I learned at Serious Decisions was the value of a strong marketing organization because when, when marketing is functioning incredibly well, it makes the job of sales so much easier. Yeah, And I, yeah. I experienced that because I was a product leader at, at Serious Decisions, and then we had an incredible marketing organization led by Jay Gaines I just, I was where they told me to be when I was supposed to be there. And I did what they told me to do. And my pipeline just was, was always full. My close rates were very high. I, I really helped to grow that, that practice exponentially at that company because they, they, they soften the path. Yeah, the just, one thing I keep telling people is the answer to a marketing led organization is good revenue operations. Yes. The only reason that the marketing team doesn't have more political capital and organizations, which they have a lot, but the reason they don't have more is because it's a field that is not usually technical across the integrations and other things and are not re responsible for the reporting and analytics and insights that a CEO makes decisions on. But you pair a good marketing team with a strong revenue operations team, you'll get that from top to bottom, right? And that really yeah. repositions an organization to be marketing led. And by the way, it's much less expensive, especially right now is, you know, if you're following the markets, um, tech companies are tightening their belts and being more effective with their dollars. It's much more effective uh, to run a, a, a good marketing team than it is even to run a good sales team. It's very expensive to run a good sales team. So, you know, I think that, you know, revenue operations is going to take even more prevalence, not only with the how to be more effective that VCs are, are, are putting down right now, but in uh, marketing being a key element of that uh, transition. Yeah, and I think, Jason, too, you, you, you made a really good point. Is don't wrap your career around a piece of technology. And you, you said that a lot of marketing people were wrapping their career around Eloqua. Well, in, in sales and in sales operations, we, we, were, we started the whole trend when CRM became very pervasive. And it, when I started, it was Siebel and then Siebel turned into Salesforce and, and other things. Yep. I was always willing to abandon that. Like, well, look, the first thing you had to abandon in sales operations from 20 years ago was just being an Excel pro because that's how you got into it. If you were great at Excel, then you were great at sales operations. And if you knew where to gather all this data, you can compile it and tell a story. That's that's what made you good. But you had to con continue to evolve with that. And you had to be willing to put yourself out of a job. Absolutely. And you still need to be willing to 
put yourself out of a job. So whether your job is tied to Eloqua or whether it's tied to Salesforce or whatever it is, think beyond that and what's going to happen after the fact. That That's how you're really successful in this career is thinking about what's coming next. You know, one thing that we like to ask on this, because, you know, when we talk and we've had a lot of experiences, obviously, we've also had a lot of failure in our career. Um, <laughs> that's part of having a career, I think, is, 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 is failing and learning from that. And the failure uh, never one of the had, questions that people to wanted to ask failing, yeah, this season is what's something that with your experience now, if you were going to go back and redo it, and this can be something recent or, or in the past, would you do differently? And how would you approach said problem now? I think it would not what I would do differently, but what 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 would I have started doing earlier in my career that I learned to do later in my career? You mentioned, you know, dress for success at at serious decisions and doing things to to get noticed a little bit, and that 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 wasn't necessarily dress for success or anything like that. It was more to to fit the part and and to also work the crowd. Yeah. Because I had to be on a big stage and I had to be able to connect with people at some point in time. So I, I think earlier in my career, when I was in my 20s and my 30s, I, I didn't place enough value on human relationships and on persuading people instead of trying to force them to see things my way. Mm-hmm. And I've got a very tough personality. And I'm very direct. And I wasn't bringing people along for the journey. And probably part of that was because I came from a military career and people fell in line very quickly. They knew what they were supposed to do. And there was no, there was no opportunity really to hurt each other's feelings because feelings weren't really part of the equation. Yes, right. But in, 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 in corporate America, feelings are very much a, a part of the equation and you're better off to, 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 to get people to go along with you and also to admit when you're wrong and modify things to try to, to try to persuade them in, in, in much more personal ways. So I think I would have focused on the people skills. A I lot. think that's really interesting because um, what what you have to realize, and you know, and there's lots of books written about this, is like you can't you have to meet people where they are, and you have to give them the breadcrumbs to uh, the next level. One of the loneliest things about being CEO of my own company was that a CEO lives five, three to five years ahead of the rest of the company. The executives live a year ahead of the rest of the company. And then you have individual resources living in the present. And it was a very weird thing to realize that what you might be waking up and thinking about today is not what everyone else is waking up and thinking about today, right? And it was a lesson in, even though we all in in Go Nimbly were very um, aligned on the goal of revenue operations, um, my, my consultants who were doing work with customers uh, our consultants at Go Nimbly, who are still there, right? Like in doing this job every day, they were dealing with people who believed in revenue operations, but didn't know how to operationalize at that level. So half the time the team was doing, you know, really important operational work. Sometimes they were doing the work of a sales admin or a marketing ops person or whatever. And as CEO of that company, you know, I was like, well, why can't customers just get in line? Like this work is, like this part of the work is useless. And it, it took me and my hubris a little bit of time to realize that those customers who were engaging with us and in the industry as a whole still had to operate their business within the constraints of today, right? And in the way that the roles were set up and the hierarchy and they couldn't just dismantle it. It would have been, 
you know, too costly. These are things I learned at moving on for as a CEO, yeah. moving into CRO on my own and moving into structures where I realized, okay, I can now understand clearly the different levels of where people are at and why organizations uh, make their way. That made the empathy level in me so much higher. And I think in the last two years, I've become much better of a storyteller, of a, uh, of a convincer, of uh, taking the brave risk and moving forward, um, meeting people where their skepticism is and staying next to that skepticism and maybe even knowing that I'm right, but allowing them to express that skepticism in a, in a healthy way, where as before, I felt the need to change their mind in a 30 minute conversation. As yeah, example. it just won't happen. It takes a long time for yeah. that to happen. What are your tips? Because, you know, it seems like we have the same thing. What are your tips for meeting someone where they're at and then still nudging them in the direction of, of change? What, what, are, what are some of the things that you've found that works? Well, first, some people can't be nudged and some people can't be changed. And when you encounter those types of people, get move, move on. Mm -hmm. Like it's not, it's not worth it. Um, and you know, there, there are things that I've seen in my career in sales that I now reflect upon where I've seen some really terrible, terrible, not just sales leaders, but they're terrible human beings. And I, I would, we're never... not supposed to talk about those people. We're supposed to talk, we're, we're supposed to paint the picture that uh, everybody just needs a, a little bit of uh, love and, and care. And, and then they're not any bad people. Yeah, well, there's some people who are just completely hopeless and you need to walk <laughs> away from those people as quickly as you possibly can. And don't 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 allow yourself to be sucked into their universe and don't waste your time. I don't care how much money they're offering you or what kind of incentives they're, they're offering you to stay, because that's generally how they get people to stay around them. Is yeah. Don't do it. Your soul's not worth it. First, first off. Second, you know, I have worked with some incredible sales leaders. Um, you know, Eddie Jenkins was somebody that I worked with at at, um, at Avaya. Uh, Bob Rodriguez was another guy. I worked with him at, at Avaya. I worked with some incredible people at Anaplan today. Bill Shu leads the CRO um, function at Anaplan. I, I look for the qualities of that individual who are truly empathetic, who understand what salespeople go through on a daily basis, and who are really willing to do whatever needs to be done in order to be effective as a leader and as a company. So I'd say hook yourself to the right star first, and then um, really try to study what's happening and figure out what you can focus on first. For, for me, the first things I always tried to focus on was getting the forecast in order, you know, understanding what's happening inside of the company so that you can do a better job of projecting what's going to happen, uh, getting compensation in line to, to ensure that people are being fairly and equitably treated, and then strategy and planning and compensation design. And that, that's something that I don't believe people are emphasizing enough on where really the CRO function, the, the revenue operations function needs its equivalent of the FP&A function that finance has. And that, that's what I call strategy planning and rewards. And that, mm -hmm. that you need a strong leader in that place. Somebody that's got like a, um, um, a wall street background or someone that that's got a um, investment banking background, somebody that understands how, how to deploy a plan to, to capitalize on whatever it is. And then making them part of the overall operating function. I think it's the most important person in the in the RevOps function is that that leader of strategy planning and rewards. That's so, so interesting because I always say that um, there's four skills in RevOps, right? There is strategy, there is tools, there's enablement, and there's insights. And the one that we fall down on the most um, 
in my opinion, in every organization is this way, is the enablement piece. And the enablement piece is not just how you do it. It's why you do it. It's, it, it is the entire structure yeah. uh, and the strategy of why people are, you know, m- would move, what would cause them to be motivated, what would cause them to not be motivated and all of this function. There's not a really good um, background to hire those people um, most of the time. And I think you just maybe gave a, a template for what you should be looking for, for those kind of people in the reward space. That's very interesting. As someone who's been building comp plans, it, it's really hard. You want to build a framework that you can change to incentivize the right behaviors and the right behaviors today may not be the right behaviors, maybe even two quarters from now, especially the earlier you're at an organization, right? Um, and so I find it to be very difficult um, to build those those frameworks and those structures that treat people fairly. Um, that's that's a very interesting thing. One thing that I wanted to follow up on because we're trying kind of like bridging the gap here. And one of the questions we ask is for leaders listening who are contemplating either changing their organization into a revenue operations organization or someone who is working in an organization that's going through this transition. Why should organizations you know, stay steadfast in moving to this new operating model? What is the, in your opinion, what is the value of, of doing this correctly? Well, the, the value of doing it correctly is getting better alignment between marketing, sales, and customer success to ensure that you've got a, a, a complete, complete visibility from lead all the way through renewal. And all the different things that can happen during those different steps in the process. And also building your, your plan and staffing your organization to, to accommodate everything that could possibly happen there. Because if sales goes out there and builds a plan for the year and marketing's not tied into that, like they've not, they've not invested in the right places or they haven't invested enough. And customer success, if they're, if they're not invested in that same sales plan, if, if the plan requires a certain level of renewal or upsell that could be driven by them, then you've got these three silos operating independently of one another and they're not interconnected. I've seen so many companies where the sales organization goes out there and builds a sales plan on, on their own. Marketing was unaware of it at the time. So now that you've got different investments being made in field, field marketing that's not connected to the overall sales plan, or there's a group of strategic accounts that sales is defined, marketing is defined a separate set, and there's a completely different ABM motion that's happening. There's dollars wasted and effort wasted in all that. And I think one of the mistakes I made when I was really trying to promote the idea of revenue operations at, at the consultancy or at the, the, the advisory firm was that I was very much focused on the organizational structure of it. Like, hey, you need to have a, a VP of revenue operations and then the marketing operations need to report into them, sales operations and customer success operations. I, I've, I've backed off that stance now. And actually, Kerry Cunningham came up with the idea of the coalition of the willing. Mm-hmm. where you don't necessarily have to have those hardline reporting structures in there. But as long as you've got a group of individuals across these disciplines who are willing to work together, and the, the way that I found to do the, the best way is to come up with projects where you can actually yep. have an outcome that you're trying to achieve, that's the way to do it. So wh- whether it be the coalition of the willing or whether it be the organizational restructure where they all report into a single leader, it doesn't matter as much as the outcome you're trying to affect. Yeah, I think that's interesting. So I always am a big fan of finding GTM cross-functional projects, right, that touch everything. And what's surprising is more touch everything than you think they do when you really examine it, if you look at from beginning to end. And then I think I've also backed off on the idea that you must be a unified 
team and you can use uh, revenue operation as a methodology for delivering work within your organization, even if you don't have a revenue operations team or you don't have the right structure in place. Uh, all of the fundamentals of it still work. And I realized this because when I went in and had conversations with people and I started talking about the misalignment, the not focusing on the customer, um, all of these things, everyone would, would nod their head. And then I would say, and the first thing you want to do is unify your team. And then that's when you would lose, you know, 50% of the room, which would be like, that's never going to happen. You know, the CMO yeah. is never going to report to the CRO or, you know, whatever it might be. And I was like, wow, this is really getting in the way of people who all agree about these problems. Um, yet why would they give up the current authority structures they have without seeing the benefit of giving yeah. them up, right? And, and I found that just having them focus on cross-functional projects and eventually the team sort of dissolves itself into um, operating models that support this. Yeah, create that operating council. And if you've had some success, then I think organically the organization is going to start to want to gravitate towards a single organization. And what, what I saw is that people in marketing were, were kind of eager to join the team formally because they saw opportunities to expand in, in areas where they hadn't had the opportunity in the past. And also, I think where you get the, the, greatest, the greatest uplift is in the analytics teams because marketing's got their analytics people, sales has got their analytics people, customer success has their analytics people. They're all focused on the analytics for their little, their little silo, but you've got so much excess resource where if they can work together and work with one another, they could do so much more. And I think if you're gonna consolidate one team initially, it would be the analytics function across those three different things because you just get more horsepower out of it. Uh, here's a side question that I'm interested in. Why, why do you think that, um... Whenever I talk to a CEO and I say, hey, you know, what's your, and they don't have a revenue operations team, they have the old models. What's your sales ops team doing for you today? What's your, you know, what's your marketing ops? What is your operations team doing to you today? And usually you're spending two to 3% of your, your revenue on operations people, right? So yeah. it's not a small percentage of your revenue that you're spending on a, on a, what they presume is a support team to make things run. Um, they have no idea, right? They have no idea how that team is helping them reach their, their goals most of the time. Um, that makes me always think like, whenever I've engaged with a CEO who understands revenue operations uh, and, and have made this transition, the, the view that they have into how their, how their functions work, how they're aligned to their, you know, their growth targets or, or North Star metrics, whatever that might be, um, how, how effective they can be, what they can handle is so much clearer. Do you ever find that this is a, a, a problem that's not at the CEO executive level? Do you find that CEOs buying this pretty easy as I do? And then what really is the hard part is changing the individual, um, I would say inherited structures below that in order to open them up to the idea of revenue operations? Like, uh, where do you find, I guess, the, the gum in the, in the gear, so to speak? Well, is the question, does the CEO know why they're spending money on, on sales? Yeah. Also? Do you find a similar thing in your experience talking to executives and, and the ones that do buy into this seem to really buy into it hard because they, it gives them so much more clarity. Uh, oh, yeah. and then secondarily, if it's not the CEO, cause in most things, like if you look at most organizations, especially organizations that say are not don't trust marketing and you interview the CEO, you usually find, oh, they don't really trust marketing either. And so that's why they are not a marketing led organization. Uh, 
I always find that usually these issues are top down. And what I have found in my experience and research is that revenue operations is not a thing where the CEO doesn't buy it most of the time, right? Because they feel the pain of this every single day, talking to multiple department heads. They see the waste, see all these things, but they have no idea how to resolve that downstream. And in, in one, because of your background and you're doing your research, is that something that you've come across in organizations? And then two, um, if it's not a leadership problem that this, this phenomenon exists, this ineffectiveness, is it, is, is it the next level down? Is it the CMO, CRO, you know, a VP of sales problem that this, this kind of misalignment occurs? I guess I'm looking for, and, and I am not a big believer in silver bullets, but since I have you here and I can put you on the spot, what is the, what is the cause from your perspective of, of, of issues? Yeah, I'm sharing a picture right now. I know a lot of people are listening to this on a podcast, but I, I've got a picture for anyone that sees it on video to, to, to help solve the problem that you just described. Because I think a lot of sales revenue operations people have a very difficult time to articulate the value that they bring to the company. And there's a couple of different things that I've repeated for many, many years. Number one is that every CRO, CSO is, is faced with an opportunity to make a decision between adding additional quota carrying people or investing in operations resources. And why would they invest in operations resources rather than another quota carrier? The answer is simple is because you're trying to get more productivity out of the people you've already hired. So you've hired a number of salespeople, you've got as many as, as you have today, but you start to see diminishing marginal returns for every single one that you hire, which means that it's really inefficient. So it, 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 you can throw as many more sales bodies at the problem as you want to, and it's just not going to continue to raise the bar the way that it needs to. So you need to be able to invest in, in resources that are going to help raise productivity for the people that you already have. And if, you, if you're talking about operations and enablement resources, and you know we, we've said this many times, the operations resources are focusing on operational efficiency. You want to make sure that your sellers show up into as many opportunities as they possibly can. And the enablement resources, those responsible for onboarding, training, and content management, you want to ensure that when they do show up, they're, they're fully prepared. And the combination of those two efforts is really sales productivity. So you're getting more sales per head out of every single seller that you have out of there. And what, what does the revenue operations, sales operations group do is they help sellers sell and they help them do it much more effectively than, than what they have been doing it in the past. And everything that you see around the outside of this graphic are typically things that they're responsible for from setting the sales strategy through sales planning, compensation design, producing intelligence, you know, ensuring that the company or the sales organization is ready for any kind of new offerings or pricing or contract changes that are gonna happen. I, I won't go around the entire outside of this so people who are watching this on video can see but these are the outside accountabilities of a revenue operations group. And what, what most people don't understand, Jason, is that everything that's happening inside this bubble from scoring the market, those are the sales planning activities through, through the strategy and the alignment and compensation design and administration and forecasting and, and really being the emissary for the CRO, the CSO. These things are happening concurrently with one another. So there's not like they happen sequentially. And you, when you're done with one, you get on to the next. You have to be able to juggle all these balls all at the same time. And right. I don't think that the executives in the company, most companies that I've spoken to really understand the complexity of all this and the demands that are being placed on these teams and the amount of support and investment that they need. 
Absolutely. I, I love this graphic, by the way. I, I think that when you look at the right side, which is the outside expression of the of the work, and then the systems that need to be designed, the internal part, and 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 teaching people in business that that like score the market segment of your accounts. That's a system that needs to keep getting attention and keeps getting refined based on where you are. Is a big hurdle, but I think the next evolution of revenue operations is to actually teach organizations that these things are systems and that they just like a product you know the, the whole reason I came to revenue operations is because I was a VP of product and I saw that oh businesses are very much like a product you can take a very product specific view of how to build an organization that this is how we assign quotas this is v1 of this this is v2 of this this is v3 of it we made these changes this is why and trying to understand how those systems evolve versus the way that they sometimes are built in especially tech organizations which is we need x output so we've created y in the background to get x and then that's where that stays and your your organization over time becomes anemic because you don't even know what the system is that's powering this thing yeah, and, and I mentioned when when I led that research practice at at Forrester, um, I, I had a there was a whole practice around vendors, so I, I had relationships inside many of these different vendor companies. I had an opportunity to go to work for a number of them, and I, I chose Anaplan because Anaplan is a platform, and Anaplan has the ability to connect all these different processes together through models into a single data hub, so that it can feed all these other things that are happening concurrently. So I, I didn't want to go work for a little point solution because I saw so many companies that were investing in individual point solutions. Their MRR was stacking up. They were paying subscriptions for all these different things that were not connected to one another. Right. I was thinking holistically. And you, as you can tell by, I, I call this like a revenue operations mandala, that everything is interconnected. It's interdependent and it needs to work from a single source wherever possible. Right. And that, that's the ultimate goal is to be able to share information across these processes so that you're not swivel sharing or disconnecting from one to the next as you're going from one one to, to the next like forecasting for instance is going to inform your your fiscal plan for the next coming year so you start with your six months worth of actuals you forecast what's going to happen between now and the end of the year and then you build some what-if scenarios on what you think next year's financial plan is going to look like you shouldn't have to spend thousands of hours on gathering data and, and transferring it between systems and trying to understand what's happening it should all be done for you yeah 100 percent Man, this is very interesting. Thank you for sharing this. Uh, last part of the podcast is a little bit of fun. I, I like to do a little bit of a lightning round that you didn't prepare for, that I didn't give you any heads up on. All right. uh, there's no right or wrong answers here. You'll just be judged um, by all of the <laughs> listeners. Uh, what's the best thing that you've watched, read uh, in uh, 2022 this year? What, what's, the, what's the best thing that you've, that you've uh, consumed? We've consumed a lot of media over the last years. But uh, yeah. what's the best that you can think of? I read a book by Robert Greene called The 48 Laws of Power. Mm -hmm. And I just thought that that was really crucial. Like, there's a lot of things that I understood from that book already, just from having practiced as much as I, as I did. And I was a martial arts practitioner. I learned under a Taoist master for 17 years, and I learned many different things about martial arts. But that sort of it documented much of the strategy and tactic that I had learned in practicing martial arts in very plain language. So if, if anyone out there is interested in just learning how to up your game and to be more influential and to really understand how the world works, I think that's a great book. Thank you for that. I, I wish I'd read it. Definitely read it. I haven't read it yet. Yeah. 
what's a life productivity hack or uh, practice that you would share with someone coming into their career? Well, when I, I was a military officer, I mentioned uh, earlier, and I was I was pretty fit when I was a military officer. I used to like to run a lot, and I, I, I gave it up for a long time, and I started again like three years ago. Um, during COVID, I was looking for things to occupy my time. I started running again three years ago. This year, I did something called um, 75 Hard, which I, I don't remember the name of the, the, the guy. He's it's from a podcast, but you have to sign up to do something every here's what you sign up to do every day you have to you have to work out twice a day 45 minute intervals uh two times one of them has to be outside you have to read at least 10 pages uh, of nonfiction. you have to follow a diet um you have to what else do you have to do anyway oh you have to drink a gallon of water uh, <laughs> a day and, and you have to do this for 75 days in, in a row yeah. I, I did it for 75 days and then i kept going after the fact, I'm, gonna, I'm on what they call phase one now. And you add visualization to that. You add some kind of uh, a book that he has called The Power List. I, I guess it just helped me recreate the discipline that I was missing in my life. Yes. During that. So from, from that period that I started doing it, I, I was already fairly fit, but I lost another 22 pounds. And just last week, I ran a 15K race up, up in a place up in Maine. And, and I placed third in my age group, which I was never a fast runner, but it was kind of, it was an enlightening experience for me to be up on the podium getting an award for something that I hadn't pursued to do. And I'm, I'm running better and faster and stronger now than I, I was when I was in my 20s. And that's pretty fulfilling. Oh, and the other thing on, on that, the phase one after 75 hard you have to take five five minute cold showers once a day which is yes hard i did thing. that for a year straight it was pretty intense you have my respect because it's really <laughs> tough um yeah. it's probably the hard, it's harder than more than running i run six to seven miles a day i i'd rather run an additional six to seven miles and take a five minute cold shower so you know i i always say this to people which is we act like willpower is a um a thing that we're born with versus a thing that we have to practice versus a thing that is a hab habitual thing that we're taught. It's like, I mean, have you, if you've ever had a kid, you realize that all we are are impulses. Like we, <laughs> it's very hard to have willpower. Uh, yeah. And so you have to actually practice that with some stoicism and some, some discipline in order to become a, to have stronger willpower. And there's not a lot of things like the military or, or the boy scouts or, or these kind of institutions that would teach uh, a certain amount of uh, practicing in the willpower, and then people hold on to that. So I, I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. What would? Uh, yeah. And what, I, you know, I had it from the military. I lost it and got it back. So I, I would say never lose it. If you if you have it, don't lose it. Yeah, I think we all lose it over time, and, and always yeah. want to get it back. Um, most important trait in a person that you work with. I think you have to be authentic. I mean, you just have to be an authentic human being and your, your, your character will shine through. You can't fake authentic authenticity. Yeah. And I, I speak authentic people. I hire based on authenticity. I hire based upon character traits, not based upon skills. And that's never really steered me wrong. Yeah. You can always tell when the CEO hires by people that impress them, not because of their character, but maybe because of something they've done and how, how it can have a negative effect on the culture of the organization because you have a lot of people who were good at something now having to do things that they're not good at. And then that really sways the opinion 
of the person that hired them. I've been in so many organizations where, yeah, I hired so-and-so and they're going to kill this. And then six months later, they're not doing what they thought they were going to do. And so uh, my assumption of that person must be off. And I'm like, maybe it's because you base the assumption on what they're going to give to you versus what they're actually going to add to the organization from like a not, I hate the word culture because it's misused in, in, in common vernacular and business, but the culture of the organization, of the authenticity of the organization as a whole, and what do they bring in those manners, I think are critically important elements that people don't really think about or talk about very often. Yeah, I, I look for people who have overcome adversity in their lives to, in whatever way they did. That, that, that's the most critical component to me when I'm going to hire someone. So one of the sales operations hired, hires I made 20 some odd years ago was a guy that was working in a in a, in a home for adult men who were, who were mentally challenged. And I'm, he described to me the things that he had to do on a nightly, like changing adult diapers was one thing. Like mm-hmm. he, and he did it for years and years and years. And, you know, he was going to get married. He wanted to have kids. He wanted to get into a professional career. Somebody referred me to him. He had no experience in sales operations whatsoever. But I thought to myself, if he's willing to do that, what would be, what would he be willing to do for me and for the organization? And, it was a lot. He, he was willing to do anything. Right. And, and, and he really devoted himself. And he turned out to be one of the best hires that I ever made. So it's character. Yeah, that, I that's really amazing. believe that, too. I believe in authenticity. I believe that uh, so many people have a problem of who they are outside of work versus who they are in work. And they should be working to combine those two things so that you can be yourself as much as you possibly can, because I think that's what builds trust. Right. I think I think someone knowing even if you're an, like, to be quite frank, even if you're an asshole, if you're an asshole and you own the parts of you that are an asshole, people will learn how to work with you and respect you versus someone that they feel like is going to backstab them or not be, say the hard thing in the moment. You know, I, I found that authenticity is kind of the key to work enjoyment for me personally is, is looking around and feeling like if that person said it and the way that they said it, I can believe that and we can just move on and not have a game of politics happening behind the scenes or anything like that. So I definitely concur with that. Yeah. There, there's a guy named Jovan Perez. You, you can see, I, I wrote a blog about him. It's, it's on my LinkedIn profile, but I worked with him at serious decisions. I went on a sale. He was a seller and I was there to support him in a sales cycle. And we, we went to Kansas city or St. Louis. I, I can't remember, but he told me the story of his life and he, he grew up in Western Massachusetts in an impoverished community Um you know, his father got arrested when he was a very young age. And he told me stories about having to heat water on the stove so that they could take a hot bath at night. Um, you know, he grew up in a neighborhood that was very violent and full of drug dealers. And he graduated at the top of his class. He went on to college. He was one of the most successful salespeople at Serious Decisions. And I just got to know him and his character. I'm still friends with him. I still talk to him all the time. He was someone that inspired me and, and just showed if so, he had to walk a different way back from school every single day because he didn't want people tracking his steps because he, he would have gotten rolled in the neighborhood. Right. And people yeah. knew he was going to a, to a high school. He had somebody that took an interest in him. I think it was in Longmeadow or something like that in, in out near Springfield, Massachusetts. And a young guy, like, uh, you know, a teenager did, did that and it was able to rise above the circumstances into which he was born. Not everyone could do that. I know it's not that easy, but he did. Right. And so, yeah, I, you know, 
I definitely yeah. agree with you. And, you know, in my personal past, I, I'm also self-made and, and come from a family where there was no one that graduated college. Right. Um, yeah. So, you know, like those kind of things are, are very indicative to personality. Some of those things can be taught. Some of those things cannot, I, you know, I, I don't really know in my group of friends, I'm, I'm by far the most successful one. And, and a lot of them didn't become successful. Um, and yet I don't really know why, because all my friends were as smart as I was and as driven as I was. Um, and it's something that keeps me both humble, but also feel proud of myself that I was able to be successful and, and build the career I have and have the work ethic I have. So it, it is a very interesting, a, a very interesting thing. And also owning that, because I've known so many people who have backgrounds from me who hide it and never feel really comfortable talking about it. Um because, you know, they're afraid that they are in a career. Consulting is a career where I cut my teeth. And believe me, a lot of people in consulting come from very affluent backgrounds where their family has been doing it for, you know, sometimes generations. And yeah. you can feel like the odd man out in the room. And I've always said that I'm going to own my own weird because it's what it is what the company hired me for. Right. Everything about me is why that company was impressed and wanted to hire me. So why would I not demonstrate that? once I'm in the door, right? And, I, and I, I do think that we're a society that tries to fit in way too much versus realizing that like, it's the individuals that really make this life worth living and interesting in the first place. And so I'd rather work in a, I'd rather work in a, a company full of characters who are being themselves than uh, the most productive company in the entire world. Um, yeah, I don't think they're mutually exclusive, but, but I do, I rather know and deal with the people that are right in front of me. Yeah, I totally agree. I don't think you can teach drive to people. They either have it or they don't. You can help people find it in themselves and, and help them build confidence just to help them understand what, what they are capable of and generally they're more capable than they, than they think. My last question and, and one that's sometimes hard, what's one thing from the last year that you are personally proud of? When I... Um, I, I left Anaplan for a period of nine months and, you know, I decided that I made a bad choice and decided to leave. And when I was leaving, I had people from Anaplan calling me before I, I even announced that I was leaving, asking me if I wanted to come back. And it was, it was salespeople who were asking me if I wanted to come back because I'd supported them in the role that I had prior, prior to that. And I was so unbelievably touched by that and just so unbelievably honored that people would reach out to me proactively like that and ask me if I was interested in coming back and you know no questions asked and there were executives and a whole team of people who just facilitated that all happening without me ever launching a call and I just I'm still touched by the whole thing like I just just really so honored to be back at this company and to be doing the things that I really wanted to do the first time I was here and to have so much love and support it was really incredible well thank um, you so much for being on the podcast i always enjoy catching up with you you are truly uh inspiration to me and in this field so i you know i want to be clear about that and say thank you for your time um and where should people catch up with you and, and follow what you're doing linkedin is the best place to get me okay, great thank you so much dana i really appreciate it thanks jason bye